open with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. I, uh, my real goal and purpose this evening is, pro- is to provide a foundation uh, to give a, a framework or an overview of what we're going to be doing this summer and taking a look at the miracles of Christ. Luke chapter 4. Luke's Gospel is perhaps the most chronological Gospel in that it follows sequence after sequence of the, of the birth and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think about the miracles of Christ, we might be tempted to look at them and to think of them in terms of random acts of kindness. You know, kind of a pay it forward kind of thing where Jesus is walking the dusty trails in Galilee and Judea and around Jerusalem and he sees people in need and he just kind of serendipitously or willy-nilly meets the need. And there may be an aspect of that that's true, but it's more than random acts of kindness. There's a random acts of kindness foundation. It started as a nonprofit 5013C um, organization in 1995 with the idea of, of spreading a general kindness through random acts. October uh, 2006, the studio audience at an Oprah taping was treated to being uh, invited into participating in random acts of kindness. They were each given a debit card on which was $1,000. They were given a camcorder in which they were challenged to go out and to demonstrate kindness through these random unrelated acts and to film the recipients of this kindness to film their response. Last month, a local church in um, in Memphis, actually, I think it would be, well, it would be Memphis, but it's on the border of Germantown, handed out about $30,000 distributed through 600 envelopes in varying amounts from $5 to $500. And the senior pastor encouraged the congregants to go out and to demonstrate kindness through these random acts. The commercial appeal, you may have seen this, in the commercial appeal, but one recipient was in the Kroger's at Hacks Crossroad in the Winchester area, and she was given $200, two $100 bills, and of course, delirious and happy to receive it in the grocery store. Um, she commented, according to the reporter, that it confirmed two things to her. It confirmed, A, there's a higher power, and B, that Southerners really are hospitable and friendly people. Well, you know, the miracles of Jesus don't exactly fall into this kind of benevolent, random spread of kindness through random acts. The very word random means no particular purpose, no particular order, and no particular plan. But that's not the case with the miracles of Jesus. And so we begin in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. It's a lengthy passage, but we're not going to look at... Everything. I just want to highlight a couple of things this evening that will give a framework of what we're doing this summer on Wednesday nights. Beginning in Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 14 and following. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So much for a warm hometown reception for Jesus. In verse 31 and following, he goes down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon, and this is Peter, by the way, Simon's mother-in-law, which shows you as an aside that that Simon or Peter was married, was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf and he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Now watch this. And he laid his hands on them and healed them. Every one of them and healed them. And demons, in verse 41, came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well for this purpose, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The miracles of Jesus, varied miracles, unbelievable, incredible miracles. And we'll look at them over the course of the summer. 
Blind people were able to see. Muted tongues, long silence by disease and dysfunction are loosed so that they're able to speak. People who were lame and had never walked in their lives or those who were lame as a result of accident or injury or debilitating disease were released from their disease and disability and were enabled to walk and to function as they had their health and strength and vitality restored to them. Even more incredibly, in Luke chapter 7, a widow's son, a dead man, was raised back to life by the power of the word of Christ. Life came, and he was restored to life and health and vitality. And so you look at the miracles, and there's a sense in which we are we're all amazed at those miracles, and we ought to be. But there's more to the miracles than just our amazement. If, you, uh, if you'll go back with me just a chapter or so here, the ministry of Jesus began in chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, when he was baptized by John, and the Holy Spirit descended, came in the form of the likeness of a dove. And um, anytime I see that, it, it reminds me of, in, um, oh, I guess the middle 1970s, I was in a very poor, early, cinematic um, masterpiece that has long since and wisely been forgotten. I was in a play as a very young college kid, a very homemade kind of play, and I got to play Jesus. I think I got to play Jesus because my hair was long then. It was somewhat curly because I had been given a permanent. And um, that's a whole other story. That was before I was converted. Um, and uh, because I, I really think because I was the pastor's son, but in this baptismal scene, we were out at Lake Chickamauga in Chattanooga, if you know, if you have any idea where that is. And it was a very windy day, and here is the uh, James Armstrong was up in the tree. Jim Armstrong was up in the tree, lowering a dove on a fishing line. <laughs> and so this bird, you know, someone's filming. This bird goes whoop and goes back up, whoop goes back up, and finally he he it goes in front of the face, it goes behind the head. Very windy day, finally lands right smack on the head. Of course, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. There was no missing when the Holy Spirit descended that day. Just a quick aside, John the Baptist was a what? Well, he was a prophet, yes, but he was also a priest. His father Zacharias was burning incense in the temple when the angel came to him and revealed that he was going to have a son. Well, if John the Baptist was a priest, he knew nothing about immersion baptism because Levitical priests did not practice immersion baptism. They baptized by pouring and sprinkling, which was a baptism of purification preparatory for and identifying Jesus with the sins of Israel. And so on this day in which Jesus would have been poured and sprinkled by this Levitical priest in line with the Old Testament mode of, um, of sacrificial or sacramental practices, the Spirit descends on him as well. And he receives an anointing to be a prophet. Three offices in the Old Testament. To be a prophet. Proclaiming the will of God and the way of God and the mind of God. Particularly in terms of salvation. He was anointed to be a priest. And he would offer not the blood of bulls and goats and so on. He would offer his own blood. And now he ever lives to intercede for his people as our great high priest. 
but he was anointed thirdly as a king, someone who would come and literally rule and reign in power and with great authority. So the ministry of Jesus begins with this anointing of the Holy Spirit to be prophet, priest, and king. And then the Spirit in Luke chapter 4 leads him into the wilderness where he faces 40 days of severe testing from the devil, Diablos, um, one who deceives and one who accuses um, God's people. And so he's into the wilderness 40 days. And whereas Adam, the son of God, failed in paradise, Jesus, the son of God, would obey and submit entirely to the will of God. Whereas Israel, which is also known as the Son of God in Exodus chapter 4, would fail by repeated disobediences. Here this Son of God would come and obey fully the will of God and submit himself to every aspect of the will of God. Coming out of the wilderness and the power of the Holy Spirit, where we begin the text this evening in verse 14, it says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit and he began teaching in the synagogues, and he was glorified by all. Now, what is it about the miracles then of Jesus that we need to know? Well, first of all, the miracles of Jesus support the message of Jesus. It's the message of redemption. It's the word of a king that rings with absolute authority. In other words, when he comes, he comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom and proclaiming good news and We have an example of the text here in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. You and I have have the Bible in book form. They had scrolls. He would have unrolled the scroll, and looking down through there, he would have found the place from which he wanted to read, Isaiah 61, and he read these words which they knew and we understand has a very messianic, application to them. Jesus stands and reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to set at liberty the captive, to bind up those who are bruised and brokenhearted, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then He rolls it back up. He hands it back to the attendant and He sits down. You could hear a pin drop. And he looks around and he says, today these words find their fulfillment in me. It was unmistakable what he was saying. I am the one whom God the Father will anoint to accomplish a redemptive mission and a redemptive end. I am the one that will set people free. I am the one that will proclaim the message of God's kindness and grace and his favor. I am the one who will come and restore back and recover back all that's been lost through sin, its consequences, and all of its attending miseries. They understood exactly what he was saying. And he must have been reading their hearts because he said, now doubtless you'll say to me, physician, heal yourself. And his response um, enraged them. First of all, this is probably the first New Testament message on the sovereignty of God in election. Because Jesus says in the days of the prophets, Elijah, there were many, many widows in the land. But God only sent him to one. And the the widow of Zarephath in Sidon was outside the boundaries, the imagined boundaries of grace. 
Sidon was a despised area. In other words, Jesus is saying that the, the message of redemption will go to whomever, whenever, and however wide God intends for the message to go. It will go all the way to despised people. You know, like in the Old Testament, when God sent Elijah, that prophet, to a widow who was helpless, broken by famine and the miseries of sin, and outside the normal pale of grace, God will even go to despise people like that through me. And then he gave another example, like like um, Elisha, when Naaman the, Syria, uh, Naaman the Syrian, who was also a Gentile, and outside the normal boundaries of imagined grace and the imagined kindness of God. He said the message will go to people like that, that we count out, God's going to count them in. And God's going to send this message of hope and recovery, this message of good news. God's going to send it there. And specifically, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to accomplish redemption's great ends, forgiveness and pardon and acceptance, freedom and liberty and opportunity. And the last thing he mentions in verse 19 is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord or the year of the Lord's favor. It's, an, it's a re- reference to the Old Testament um, celebration of Jubilee. Every 50th year, debts would, be, debts would be forgiven and land that had been lost would be restored to its owner and people who were, were slaves would be set free and all that had been lost would be given back. And here's what Jesus is saying. All that's been lost in the fall all that those made in the image of God have lost through sin's spread and sin's misery and sin's consequences. Everything lost in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to restore it according to God's plan and God's purpose. This is the message of the king anointed to be God's redeemer and God's deliverer. So the miracles are more than random acts of kindness. The miracles support the message of Jesus. When he says that that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, a little bit later he gives tangible illustrations of what that looks like, of what it looks like to recover what is lost, of what it's like to be restored. For example, we read this evening a little bit later in the text that that, uh, uh, those enslaved by demonic beings, by demons, were set free by the power of his word. Those who were diseased, their bodies were riddled with with uh, misery and deformity and debility and riddled with death, he came to reverse the flow of that and to heal them and to set them free. So the miracles of Jesus really support the message of Jesus. I'm the one, and here's what salvation looks like. I'm the one with the message, and here's the credentials that support the fact that I'm the one. In the... The Bible, there are three great epics, E-P-O-C-H, um, of miracles. They're in the Old Testament, they revolve around Moses with the miracles in Egypt and in the wilderness. They revolve around the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Um, and they revolve around the coming of Christ and the apostles. And every time there's this great outpouring of miraculous activity... God is bringing new revelation, a a new development in the progress of revelation. Moses comes and says, I'm the deliverer. 
And here are these great miracles. Elijah and Elisha as prophets proclaim great deliverance and there are supporting miracles. And here comes the one to whom all the law and the prophets were pointing to, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are unprecedented miracles taking place. Withered hands being restored. Life coming back into death and disease-riddled bodies. And in many ways, the miracles then are just supporting and sustaining the message that Jesus would, would provide. But also the miracles show the coming of the kingdom of God. You notice at the end of the passage we read this evening, later in chapter 4, Jesus says, I must, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent this purpose. The miracles of Christ are the inbreaking of the rule and reign of God in the normal course of events. The normal flow of events are interrupted by the power of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as if a curtain is pulled back and God shows us a glimpse of His might and His majesty and His power. And Jesus does it simply by the power of His Word. He's teaching in the synagogue. And imagine this, in a religious place where worship takes place and where the Word of God, the law, the prophets... And the writings were read each Sabbath. Suddenly the king shows up and a demon cries out in response, in recognition, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the anointed one. And Jesus, with simply a word, commands him to be quiet, literally to be muzzled. Silence. And then with the word of command says, come out. And the demon comes out. And all those who witnessed that marveled and were astonished at what? His authority. Simply by the word of command. A man whose life is enslaved and shackled by a demonic alien entity is released and set free from the demon's enslavement and control. So the miracles show the coming of the kingdom of God. Now there's a sense in which... The kingdom of God rules and reigns over all things. But within, the, uh, within the, the kingdom of God, you've got the universal sovereignty of God. God is as king over all things. But with, within that and underneath that, you have Christ coming to begin to inaugurate something called the kingdom of God. And... The miracles, the miracles demonstrate the inbreaking of this rule. They show us what the rule of God is like and the power of God is like and the authority of God is like. And the very nature of the miracles themselves show us what the coming of the kingdom is like then and what the kingdom of light will be in the future when the king comes back. The long-promised kingdom is present because the king is here. And so when we respond to Christ, listen, when we respond to Christ, we we respond to him not just simply as a savior, but we respond to him as Lord. We respond to him as king and as master. One of the great heresies in recent years has been this idea that you can receive Christ as savior and not have him as Lord. That it's a two-step process. I received him as Christ and 
19 whatever, but I did not make him as Lord until five years later, 10 years later, whatever. No, 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 no. When we receive Christ, he comes in as Lord to rule and to reign. We don't crown him. We don't make him. We don't enthrone him. He comes in as Savior and he comes in as King and as Master and as Lord. And the miracles show us the dominion of Christ, His absolute authority over both demons, disease, and death. But listen, even more than all of that, I mean, that's grand. If um, if we do nothing else but, but see the, the great kindness of God in the miracles of Christ and we see the authority of Jesus, that would be grand. But, but here's what I hope we'll see this summer in closing. That we will not just see then, you know, that, that demons are expelled and disease is healed. And we'll think, well, that was great. You know, what a Savior. What a great Savior. What great power. That we will also see it finally this evening as a means of grace in our life now, that we will see the miracles of Christ as a means of grace and hope and encouragement in our life now. And how will we do that? Because the miracles show us Christ as Redeemer, and it shows us our need of His redemptive activity. Let me explain, if I may. We're accustomed to thinking about sin's penalty and that we're in need of justification. We're in need of, of a covering, an atonement. A, um, we're in need of a Savior to come who's paid the penalty for our sin. And often we think about this in terms of forgiveness and ultimately we think about it in terms of heaven. But as our Redeemer, Christ is also saving us from the very power of sin. He's ruling and reigning over our lives now by His Word and by His Spirit, in which more and more of our lives steadily, progressively, and sometimes it feels like with uh, three steps forward and two steps back, but He's progressively redeeming us from the present power of the remnants of indwelling sin so that we are people who are being changed and transformed. He's leading us to honest confession about who we are and our needs. He's leading us to specific intelligent repentance over long-standing issues in our lives. And he shows himself as not just one who covers the penalty and is going to get us to heaven, but he's in the process even now of sanctifying us by his truth and by his spirit. And then in the miracles of Christ, we will see... Christ also saves us from the presence of sin. All of the, the, the fact that here's a man in the synagogue who's demonically enslaved, made in the image of God, made for communion and fellowship with God, made to worship God and love Him and serve Him, his body made to reflect the goodness and the glory of God. Here he is in the image of God, enslaved, tormented and shackled by a fallen angel, a demonic being, a demon. And you see the power of Christ 
and that in His presence He brings freedom. And every one of the diseases that you will look at, that we will see, every one of the miracles that we will see, they're all the consequences of the fall in Genesis 3. They're all the consequences of the fact that we are a flawed people, a fallen people, living in a fallen world. There's a book in our bookstore, and I would highly recommend it to you, by Cornelius Plantinga. Uh, Cindy Shriver will have to help you find it. Cornelius Plantinga. And the title of it is this, Not the Way Things Are Supposed to Be. The subtitle is A Brevery, A Brief Review or Description of Sin. And what it describes is the loss of paradise. So that there's a sense of, there's a thread of frustration and futility and loss that runs through all of life. So that we look at life and we know things are not the way they're supposed to be. And if we're honest with ourselves, we also know that there's a lot of it we can't do much about. We're powerless to really do much about anything. And despite all the political rhetoric that we've endured thus far, ad nauseum, and all the political rhetoric that we will endure straight up to November, the empty promises, the bombast, the rhetoric, will not transform America or the world into paradise and a utopia. Only the coming of the king himself will effect that great change. When you, look at the, when you look at blind eyes, when you look at muted tongues, you look at demonically enslaved people, you look at the dead man in Luke chapter 7, you look at withered limbs, you, you look at the, the woman with the... Uh, with the issue of blood, as the, the old uh, King James says, with the hemorrhagic problem related to her cycle. When you look at all of that, you're seeing the corrosive, debilitating effects of sin's presence among us and all of the associated miseries, the tears, the brokenness, the emptiness, the poverty of soul, the dysfunction. You're looking at people who need a redeemer and in them I hope this summer that you will be reminded that in Christ alone is our redemption for sin's penalty for the present remaining battle with sin that we all experience if we're honest and for the very presence and freedom which we all long to experience if I could put it another way the things, the, the, the things that will require miracles show us the corrosive effects of sin and how Jesus responds and delivers people under sin's misery show us the delivering power of Jesus and will point us to the fact that in Christ alone, all of us, listen, in Christ alone, all of us without exception are reminded that He alone is our hope in this life and in the life to come. But I also hope that the miracles of Jesus this summer will remind us afresh of the tender kindness and the compassions and the goodness of our God. How good of God to not leave us in our lost condition, but to send to us one who could say truly, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set at liberty those who are bound, to proclaim freedom and liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is that God is going to restore all that you've lost in the fall. God's going to give it back to you. And he's going to give it back to you through me. What a great Savior. You know, the, the funny thing, not, not funny as in ha but the ironic thing in the Scripture, with, and, and we'll, we'll close with a, a brief prayer and benediction. The funny thing that we'll see, the ironic thing that we'll see about the miracles in the Scripture, I just made a mess of that. How about that? In the, in the Scripture... Um, the, uh, the, the funny thing about the, the ironic thing about the miracles of Christ is the, the clean in the Bible, when clean comes into contact with unclean, what happens to clean? Anybody? When clean comes into contact with the unclean, what happens? It becomes unclean. You're left then with two uncleans. But in the person of Christ, when the holy, who is also perfectly clean, comes into contact with the unclean, you know what you're left with? Two cleans. Because the flow of His power changes the unclean. The flow of His power reverses the disease, reverses the death, reverses the enslavement, reverses the loss of freedom, opportunity, and liberty. And in those miracles, we see a glimpse and a foretaste of what awaits us in the glory to come when our Redeemer ushers in the kingdom and all of its consummation. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May we behold His grace and His glory afresh this summer. Father, thank You for all of the goodness and kindness that You have so lavished, so graciously lavished upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that You would prevent us this summer from simply seeing the miracles as something that took place then, that we might see grace and glory and hope in them now. May we be encouraged by what we see as we behold more of Christ and all of His grace and glory. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And now may the grace of the Lord bless you and keep you and uh, sustain you through the balance of the week and prepare you for worship this Lord's day. Amen.